kids are invited to kids' church in the library. It seems like a journey we started many summers ago, uh, deciding to go through the books, the Torah. Um, but when we ended the book of Leviticus two summers ago, or the book of Numbers two summers ago, that the book of Exodus two summers ago, third time's the charm, uh, the book of Exodus two summers ago, that sort of had the similar scene to which work can finish for us, is that the, the, that the smoke and the cloud come over the tabernacle and it talks about these marching orders. And in between that, we've had the long book of Leviticus, and we've had these first 10 chapters of Numbers, sort of as if the people were listening to God. It's the story of sort of stability at the base of Sinai. There are one or two challenges along the way and bumps, but a lot of what we see at this moment and this time going forward is the sort of place of normalcy. Now, one of the things about being sort of a healthy person in the world is having places of stability. Now, I say that as if there are some people who don't have stability, and it causes all sorts of anxieties and, and difficulties, but, but part of the pattern of health comes from this place of stability to this place of, of, of disorientation to this place of regaining orientation, is that we live in a world where it, is, it can feel as if it should be, is necessary to development. And the realization that things aren't as they should be is also necessary for development. And the ability to come out on the other side of that is equally important. And so this is one of the things a long time ago I talked about with the Psalms here, although if you were at Skylark, I talked about it there, is that it's a helpful way to read at least a large portion of the Psalms. There are Psalms of orientation. There are psalms of which the world is right in which you are formed appropriately by God and everything behaves normatively. Some of us are blessed to live 80% of our lives that way. Some of us have the difficulty of only having small glimpses of what that means. But orientation, this place here, is this place of formation in which you can begin to build character. You can be, begin to build things up. You can begin to see a world as it might be able to, to act and be. This is the place before the fall in the book of Genesis as well. And then in all our lives, there are times or seasons or years in which we live in times of disorientation. You can see this in the Psalter as well. There are psalms that sort of name, there are more psalms probably about this than there are psalms about just happiness or orientation. It names the darkness and confusion and the challenges of the world. Things aren't acting as they should be. I've been betrayed. I'm surrounded by enemies. I'm stuck in the pit, what Ray told us before the sermon today, uh, or before the introduction today. I am lost in these places. There's these moments of disorientation. And the psalm also contains other psalms of new orientation. It's when we've gone through those first two movements and then we begin to find that things aren't as dark as they seem, that there is some lifting up, that there is some place to be. And, and the, the important part is that you don't go back to, to, to say this in somewhat of a critical ra way, the naivete of the first orientation. You don't go back and say, well, it's nice to be in a world that doesn't have that dysfunction anymore. That's probably part, part of the problem, I think, with our development as Christians is we think the goal is to get back to where it's naive, where we can deny that those things exist. But the sign of moving forward sort of into maturity and into wholeness is to see 
that there's a new orientation that comes out of that. One of the ways I like to put this, and it's helpful in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, is there is home, there is uh, wilderness and exile, and then there is home on the other side of that. And when you come back to that home for the third time, it's not the same as it was before you went through that journey. This is just to say that what we've seen from the end of the book of Exodus till now is a place of stability for people who lived in trauma and slavery in Egypt. They're giving a place of formation in which God resides with them. The food magically appears. There is no threats for them. They're, they're protected and guarded, and God is taking up residency among them. This is the season of stability. And if, and if, you're, if you're keeping score, we're about to leave the season of dispil, de, uh, stability into the deep challenges of the wilderness. It's almost instantly after um, what Carla read for us, uh, in, in from Numbers, a little bit later from where, where Kim read for us in 9, um, that the people begin to murmur and complain. The people begin to feel lost again already. And that's what happens when we leave these places of stability. It's what happens when we move on from these places. And so, and to note, we're not exempt from these patterns as well. I was thinking about this week a lot, and this is ties into more maybe at the end of the sermon, is that we don't long for the destination often when we end up in these places. I don't know if that's true for you, but if, if you're trying to root out a sin in your life or trying to go through something suffering, you wonder why I even went on this journey in the first place. I was better off back in slavery. And it's this call to hope that's often lost. It's interesting, all these murmurings as we go through this in the next book of the Numbers are not, if only we were in the land already. If only we, we were at God have to reside us. And this is, this is um, just an interesting human psychology that we would go and say, instead of wishing I was there already, most of us, when confronted with trial and difficulty and fear, go, I should have never left home in the first place. And what God calls these people to do, he cuts off that option. Who's, uh, who's the guy who burns the ships when they, when they get to sea so they can't go back? Uh, God doesn't give them the chance to go back. He pushes them forward through this, through this disorienting time, through this space so that they can reach the land on the other side, so that they can find a new home and a new place. And so that's where we are at at sort of this hinge in the book of Numbers. And this hinge um, exhibits this sort of uh, second Passover type thing. Is they're, is they're called, before they go on this journey, to break the Passover bread again and to remember that God had rescued them from Egypt. This is where their memories are reformed into the mighty acts of what God has done. And this is interesting because when God commands the Passover, and it's this great scene in the book of Leviticus as it goes from like, I'm rescuing you, there's plagues, there's disaster, here's a recipe for a meal. Um, it just cuts to this long sort of way in which they are to dine together. It's an odd timing when you follow it in the book of Leviticus. It's like all the story has heightened up. If this were a movie, this would be like, we can't even put this on the extended cut DVD. It makes no sense that at the exact height of everything, we're going to give them long instructions for how to eat a meal together. And yet this is what happens in the book of Exodus. But what it says there is that you should have this meal again when you arrive in the land. And yet here again, they're commanded 
have this meal along the way. And one of the things that I think is, is true for us in the book of Numbers is this idea from the Hebrews, is, is the book, letter to the Hebrews is a uh, letter of the, the book of Hebrews um, in the New Testament, is that there's this phrase that I'm always stuck with, is that it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of God. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of God. And what we already see at this moment is that there are hinges of like, they weren't supposed to take that long to get to the promised land. It's only about a two-week walk or, or not even that to get from where they are to the promised land. God calling them to take the Passover again says, it's going to be a long time before you eat this meal in that land at that time. Or even what they, what they ask about is, we've been around death. Can we receive the Passover? At this point in the book of Numbers, they've just counted a lot of people. Death seems rather inconvenient around a census. I'm sure it happens, but it's almost like it's, it's laying into the story that there are darker and more difficult times ahead as this God takes residency up in the camp to be near these people. I think it's a challenge for us as well to sort of see that, that as we have God come near to us in holiness and in fire and smoke as it happens here, there's also danger there as well. There's also challenge there as well. There's this, there's this famous and oftentimes much used um, Annie Dillard quote that always makes me laugh when I think about this. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible, uh, sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does anyone not believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense. For the waking God may draw us out of where we can never return. As God comes near in the camp, as God comes near in this place, there's always this challenge as well. I mean, we, we exist with a very soft and pacified God, the sleeping God. Um, but someday they might rise and take offense. Now, this is, um, brings me to a joke. I hope people find it funny. It's a little morbid. But uh, 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 Stanley Harwas, one of my favorite theologians who we read a book by, says that, you know, I always advocate that churches should take communion every Sunday. Not because it would make us more faithful, but it would at least make us more interesting because God promises to kill us if we take it unworthily. <laughs> um, it's a dark and morbid joke. Um, and yet there's also this truth of like, how is it we come to that moment in that time? How is it we, we know that we are getting near to this God in this space? And so for the Passover at this time, it's the spot in which they're sort of breaking bread and remembering the faithfulness that God has shown to them, that God has rescued them when they had no hope. The great definition of the gospel I love is that God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. When you're stuck in slavery in Egypt, God will do for you what you can't do for yourselves. God will lead you and, and guide you. God will do for you what you can't do for yourselves as start of this call. And so they're called to remember that. Now, it's interesting for, for like, if you were to ask a rabbi about this, that, that 
for rabbis and Jews, rituals are their catechesis. It's their discipleship. It's their training in the faith is through the enactment of the ritual. The idea of uh, here's your copy of the Torah, go home and read and study it, they have people for that, but for the most part, if you are going to be a faithful Jew today and for much of history, it's to ritually enact the stories over and over again. It's to bring them to the present. That's how you're marked and etched in this way, to take this Passover, to do this thing, to remember that God is the one who freed you, and to remember is to bring it to the present in a different way. We were, uh, Shelley, do you remember, why, why is this night different than all the other nights? What's the answer? Yeah, that's, Shelley leads a Seder here sometimes. But the Seder that, that you can practice today in many different churches is a great r- way of sort of retelling what it's like to live in this heightened sense of that what, this is what God did for us. And it's almost, you're practicing it away as if it's enacting right at the moment. It is the thing that's going on now. It's not just something in the past. Now, I, um, just bad preaching 101. Um, I worried I didn't have enough today, and, and I think I do, but I had a sidebar from something we went through in the book of Leviticus, um, and it's from this, this massive book by Charles Taylor, and it's describing the modern world we live in. And it says that we sort of live in this um, secular age. It's a diagnosis of what it means to live today. Um, and so one of the images we used for that for Leviticus, and this is from James Smith's shorter book on a secular age. So a secular age is this big, James Smith's book is this big, and it's a not a bad introduction to the book. Um, but, but on the left is a person who is what they call a porous person. And this is the sort of the way that the Jews and these people existed, that they viewed themselves as being able to be touched by other things in a way that changed them. That's part of the question is, we've been around death. Like, you could absorb that in this mindset. And it says underneath it, the human agent was seen as porous. The self is essentially vulnerable and hence also healable, which is interesting. To be humans is to be essentially open to the outside, whether benevolent or uh, malevolent, is that there's, um, there's this accessibility of the human body. And this is where, I mean, you see this throughout even robust Christian cultures with the fear of witches or dark places or haunted places, more common in society, that the body is more porous to these receptions. One of the, the interesting parts about this, and, and you can think through it for yourself, but like for an ancient Christian to practice yoga would be like, I'm exposing myself to some sort of demon or that and the other. Whereas most modern Christians have this idea of the buffered self. This is the one on the right. It's that only the things that can enter or touch me are things that I really let in. And even if I let them in, I can shoo them out relatively clear. There's not a whole lot of, of, of notion that your life can be touched in any way by anything outside yourself that could change you unless you did it. And so in the shift to the modern imagery, minds are bounded, are bounded inward spaces. A buffered self is insulated and isolated. It wasn't enough to divest from the world of spirits and demons. It was also necessary that the self be buffered and protected. When we talked about this in Leviticus, and as we talk about it today, all of us live buffered lives. And there's no really going back to the poorest self of the ancient world. And there's some good reasons for that. We don't have witch trials in America uh, anymore. 
sorry. Uh, we did. We don't do that anymore because we live in this different sort of phrase. And so there's a protected realm there, but it's also we lose meaning in that way. I don't think it's hard to think of the ways in which we lose some meaning in this way. And it, and it goes back to that quote about the, the God who dwells in smoke and fire and comes near and is terrorizing as much as he is comforting. If you live a buffered life, it's hard to expose yourself to that sort of thing. Nothing can affect me for that which I choose to let affect me. It's also why sickness and, and um, disease are so challenging for the modern mind, because you don't choose it. It just happens to you, and you're like, what happened? In the ancient world, there would be more uh, explanation for why your poor self was able to sort of be absorbed in that way. But it's why we find ourselves so distraught at various different times. The reason for this is, is this diversion is not just to talk about how we might expand through this, but, but this quote from Charles Taylor himself about, um, uh, at the end it's from Charles Taylor, about how we perceive time in relationship to these rituals. But to illustrate for, and I'll skip some of these names, but to illustrate for these pastors, their time wasn't frozen in a linear progression as we now assume. Certain meanings cast o meaning. Certain moments cast meaning over all ordinary life by shifting time. The people to whom these pastors ministered had a shared imagination, a social imagination, as Taylor calls it, that led them to assume that Good Friday in the year 435, 1138, or 1752 was closer to the original day of the crucifixion than a midsummer evening in 433, 1130, 1750. Or to say it more directly, they would say a holy day, say Good Friday 2018, is closer to the crucifixion than an ordinary day, say July 10, 2015. Taylor says, the church in its liturgical year remembers and reenacts what happened in, in, in and at the time when Christ was on earth. Why is this year's Good Friday, why is it this year's Good Friday can be closer to the cr crucifixion than last year's Midsummer Day? And the crucifixion itself, since Christ's action passion here participates in God's eternity, is closer to all times than they are in secular terms and to each other. Big, long quote. What I'm arguing here, related to Charles Taylor and the Passover and communion and Good Friday in this case, is that when we come together on these days and reenact these things, there's something in which we say, in which we're bringing it to the present, in which it's closer to us than if we were doing this on an ordinary day two years ago or an ordinary day 15 years ago, is that there's something about the corporate imagination, the social imagination that says, at this moment, we're moving into this space and time. Now, there's a thing about memory. This is psychologically true, but, but it's also true in, in some of the uh, animesis, a, a, an older word for memory, is when you draw something to the present, you, when you remember something, you draw it into the present, and it makes new connections to it, and it changes. This is why families fight about what happened all the time. Hey, what happened when we were on that rafting trip? What happened when we were on that camping trip? Everybody remembers it a little bit differently. And the context by which you keep bringing it back to the presence is changing the memory a little bit. What does that mean for the Passover? It means as we call it to mind and, and communion and, and, uh, and a Seder or, or Holy Week and um, we call it to mind in a way that it makes us think of the slavery in which we abide in. It makes us cherish the ways in which God has freed us still today. 
makes us find new patterns and paths in life. It's not that you just call it to mind to remember that God freed you from the Pharaoh. You call it to mind also to remember that God freed you from your sins and passions and from death, from slavery, from the need to have more, from the need to secure your own future, the need to make your own self. God has freed you from all those things. Our memory doesn't work just in a way to say, well, now I remember that that happened. It's to make it real for you, is to bring it into the present, to bring it to touch you in some way is the goal there. And so as we image this Passover, the one that we take after the way that Jesus took his, from the night he was betrayed, as we say, that we call the forth the way that Christ guides us out from our slavery. Christ brings us into new life. Or, or in the phrase of this sort of image is to say that rituals and um, enactments are our catechesis as well, are our discipleship as well. I think we have this assumption that the only thing I could, the only way as a pastor or as another Christian you could disciple or help somebody is by pumping more information into them. Here's a new Bible study program. Here's a new devotional. Here's this. And that's not to undercut those things at all. They're important. They build the backbone of the other thing. But the ritual enactment can also bring us to different places. Sometimes we, we are just um, heads on top of a, of, of a pile of meat, and we think that the only way we get information into you is to shove it into your head. But to enact it in your body, to enact it in your movements, to enact it with a meal, as the Passover would be an actual meal, or communion in the early church would be an actual meal, to move through these moments and times, to take them into your body, to have um, uh, smells and feeling and other things attached to them actually brings more to the meaning of the moment than just piling it into your head. This is, this is the challenge of sort of this moment. And so they're, they're called to sort of take this Passover again here as they set out on this journey. The spiritual health of Israel, as you read the Old Testament, is often attached to renewing the Passover. Here they renew the Passover before they go out into the wilderness. It breaks open new patterns with Passovers. It breaks open new options, particularly from the first one and going forward. And the reforms in, in some of the prophets, they return to better Passover practices. And this is why it shouldn't shock us that Jesus too, as he opens up what some people call a new exodus for us, begins with a Passover begins with a new way of freedom and taking us out into the world. It calls forth forgiveness and new life and new creation. And so this Passover is a reminder of that. The, the second thing in today's text that, that Kim read for us is these clouds that descend on this camp, this fire, this thing that comes near, and it's what leads them and guides them. It comes and it rests with them and it, and it lifts and they go with it. And this is, um, there's so much to say about it in the sense in which it's more shocking, I think, that God resides with a people than that God um, is somehow off in the distance. You know what I mean? That, that God comes near should be more shocking to us. We're always uh, sort of on the other side is that how does God come near? But it's, it's the miracles and the nearness that God is taking to these people and the way that he's going to lead them. 
Or as the psalm says, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. God becomes Israel's shepherd and guide here in the desert. God is going to lead them to this place. God is going to guide them with this sort of movements and bring them to the edge of the plains of Moab, and then they're going to go into the land. The gods become sort of this intimate, near guide for them. That God becomes this leading power and fire. That God is, God is with them, and they sort of, as, as it said in Numbers 9, that they follow the charge of the Lord as they follow the cloud. They move with this thing. And this cloud and fire, um, this is it descending and ascending, has this, has this way, if, if you look at this image, of, of sort of revealing and hiding at the same time. That, that when God and the, 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 I learned Akkadian this week, which is not a language I'm, I'm fluent in, uh, very dead, very dead. Um, but there's the, the Akkadian word that's near the Hebrew word that's used here is, it's almost like this disc is appearing behind sort of a screen. It's like this cloud behind the sun, and it, and it reveals something as much as it hides something. And, and as we're familiar with what we've seen in Exodus in this is that God's presence as it comes near to people always needs to be shielded because if it wasn't, it would just obliterate, obliterate that which was there. This is why that the, at the transfiguration on the mount where Jesus comes, there's cloud and fire again, and they fall to the ground. It would seem it's entirely weird that this is as shocking as it is to them, but, but this is what happens when Jesus is sort of revealed in that transfigured glory, is it becomes a terrorizing moment of, of you need this sort of shield to be near it. It's also, um, it calls forth this idea that what's revealed is also hidden at the same time. You have to believe, you have to have some notion that there's something radiating behind there that isn't just um, a reflection. That God's presence is, is, is such that it is actually coming to us through this. This is Moses on the mountain when, when he has to see God's backside so that, so that he can't see the front. Is that there's something about this radiated glory that needs something to come over it. So the people here are given this instability too. And, and what happens that says in Numbers 9 is that the people listened. Out of all the things throughout the book, the thing the people listen to the most is this cloud descending and ascending. They have protests and murmurings and anger and, and trials along the way, but it seems to be that when the cloud moves, they go with it. When the cloud descends, they stay. This becomes their rhythm of relating to this God. As they fail and stumble along the way, they're at least ready to know that if we stay here, we die here. So when it moves, despite what happened, we move with it. When it stops, despite what has happened, we stopped with it. They're called into this relationship with this thing that is sort of terrorizing as well as it is comforting at the same time. Back to the Annie Dillard quote is, how do we get back to a God with our buffered selves that can be terrorizing and comforting at the same time? Can have a comforting demand on our lives. So I was listening to a podcast this week. This is the final part of this sermon. Um, between a, a big thinker and a Catholic priest, and, and the thinker was a psychologist, and he said that you to the Catholic priest, meaning, and I think he was talking to all pastors, you expect far too little from everyone there. Um, you just comfort them every week. 
You listen to their challenges and trials, and you expect nothing from them. Um, and it was convicting for me, not in the sense of, of how I relate as a pastor to the people in my congregation. It had more to say about the type of God that I believe in as well. God is comforting. And yet God, like the people of Israel, he doesn't give them a choice to stay at the base of Sinai and live in this stable place. He calls them out into the wilderness so that they can go through the patterns of holiness and become more fully his people, can become the ones he called out. And this is where this um, salvation as an adventure or journey thing can get messed up, is, is because when we join in the salvation of God's work in the world, when we become the numbers people, as we talked about last week, between those two hinges of we are promised a land in which we are going to, and that we also live back with this slavery imagination of it was comforting there. When we, when we leave on that journey together, we find ourselves in this place of, of meeting with God's promise there. But when we talk in the church today about, well, he's on a journey or salvation's a journey or an adventure, we have to be careful not to let to slip in that, that what comes is secured by us. What we await and what we are moving towards is the, the, the beautific, beautific vision, as it's called uh, in Greek phrases, or heaven, as we call it blandly in America. Um, what we await is not secured by us. So as we journey, as we adventure with this call, as we move into this wilderness and we, we rebel um, and we have our own deaths along the way, we have our own regrets of wanting to go back as we no longer have the comforts of, of home with garlic, I think is what they complain about at one point. As we leave and do those things, we're being called out into a new future and a new life by God that he secures for us. That is God's place to give us. And so that's where we finish with the book of Numbers today. Is we've been in places of stability. We've been in times where God forms us and things up is up and down is down. But there are times and there are challenges and there are ways in which we desert the desert or the wilderness of our own trial and testing in which those things become questions in which we rebel and want to go back to other creature comforts. And it's for us and for our God to continually to call us forward until we reach the edge of the promised land. Let us pray. God who comes and descends in the camp, May you take rest for us. May you call us to these moments of stability. May you give us the gift of knowing what it means to grow in trust and to find patterns in your life. May we practice meals of remembrance around the mighty works you did for Israel, but that you also do through us to us through Jesus Christ. May your spirit enliven our lives to see these days as days in which we are drawn deep into the drama of what you do in the world. God, too, may the, the cloud lift and may we march. May as a church we go to the new and exciting and different places you have for us. May we stick with it through our rebellions and backwards looking. 
May we confess and find ourselves moving into a new future. God, we too have our wilderness. So we ask that we would move when you move. We would go when you go. And may whether it be 38 years, whether it be longer or shorter, may we come to the land of milk and honey that you have promised us. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As the music takes